Well, good morning. If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, and we'll begin reading in verse 32 here in just a moment. Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. In John chapter 7, the chief priests and the Pharisees uh, send officers to go and arrest Jesus. And these officers come to Jesus, and there's a crowd there, and they hear teaching um, that he is giving on that occasion. And when they come back to the chief priests uh, and Pharisees empty-handed, they're indignant, and they say, what happened? Why didn't you bring him? That was the, the purpose for which we sent you. And these officers, they reply back and say, no one ever spoke like this man. And that statement could be true of of lots of occasions, all of the words that Jesus spoke. Uh, We think about his formal sermons, uh, some of the greatest sermons ever preached, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. We think about the parables that Jesus taught on a number of occasions, his bread of life discourse. They were words that were unlike anything the people had ever heard before. In fact, after the Sermon on the Mount, you remember what the people said? They were astonished at His words, astonished at His sayings, because He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. We could think of other occasions where Jesus' words were powerful and no one ever spoke like this man spoke. We think about his personal interactions with people, his interactions with Nicodemus or the woman at the well. Or we think about Simeon. No one spoke like this man did. Uh, We think about other occasions with his apostles, maybe in that upper room at the Last Supper when he's giving them final instructions and he prays prayers on their behalf. We think about his debates or disputes with his opponents. The scribes come and the lawyers come and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he answered them all to a point that no one dared question him anymore. No one ever spoke like this man. But a few weeks ago, I ran across a quote by Turnbull. And he says rightly, Never are we more impressed with the truth of these words than when we come to the cross and listen to the last words of the suffering servant of God. No one ever spoke like this man. So this morning, I want us to consider the seven statements of Jesus on the cross. And seven is, of course, the number of perfection. And completion. And there is a completion to these statements that is a microcosm of Jesus' life and his teaching. Jesus died as he lived, both human and divine, focused on others, and freely fulfilling the Father's will. The statements are these, and this is in chronological order as best we can tell from Luke chapter 23 Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says to one of the robbers on the cross beside him. He says to his mother in John 19, Woman, behold your son, and to John, the apostle whom he loved, behold your mother. He cries out to God in Matthew and Mark, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out in John 19, I thirst, it is finished. And then finally he says with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
The first three of these statements are all focused on others. And the last four are focused on Himself and God and His purpose. And even in death, Jesus puts others before Himself. And maybe especially in death, Jesus is focused on fulfilling the plans of God. Fulfilling the plans that God had from before the foundation of the world. So let's look at these seven statements together, beginning in Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. Would you read with me, please? There were also two others, criminals, robbers. Uh, it's the same word in Greek as those people who ambushed the, uh, the man who was on his way to Jericho in the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. So these criminals were led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. This is the first thing that Jesus says on the cross. The first thing that he says as He hangs there in agony. Jesus' love for mankind continues to shine forth, even in death, even toward the ones who were murdering Him. This is why He came. And Jesus knows that they do not fully understand what they're doing. Can you imagine that? Jesus, in His pain, giving them the benefit of the doubt, knowing the evil that is in their hearts, and yet at the same time knowing that they don't fully comprehend their actions. The Apostle Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8. In talking about the revealed mystery of God in Jesus on the cross, Paul says, "...which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known..." they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul and Jesus both say, if these people had truly knew and comprehended what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. But isn't that true of all sin? How often do we sin against others without fully realizing what it is we are doing? Without fully realizing the consequences of our action? without fully realizing the pain and hurt we are causing? And how much more freely could we forgive others if we realize that other people often do not know what they are doing? Not fully. For if they knew how much they were hurting us, if they knew how much they were hurting God, if they knew how much they were hurting themselves, they likely would not do it. All sin. All sin is irrational. To give up eternal life for anything else is foolish. What shall a man gain if he, he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And if we truly understood what we were doing when we sinned, then we wouldn't do it. Or we certainly wouldn't do it as often. But ignorance is not the same as innocence. And neither is knowledge alone enough for salvation either. And so the prayer of our Lord here is still the prayer that He prays for us today. He desires our forgiveness of the things that we have done. He is long-suffering toward our ignorance, toward our hard-heartedness, because He does not desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And where is that truth more clearly seen than here on the cross when He cries out to His Father and asks, 
for them to be forgiven. But it is only those who came on Pentecost seeking forgiveness that ultimately would be saved by his sacrifice, perhaps with one notable exception. Keep reading, if you would, in verse 35, down through verse 43. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were, who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing as you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. How ironic is it that all these, the crowd, the soldiers, the criminals, they tell Jesus to save himself when he is in the very act of providing the way of salvation for them. At any time, he could have averted his fate. He could have called 10,000 angels or 12 legions of angels and averted his fate. But in so doing, he would have sealed our fate. And Jesus would do far better than come down off of a cross in self-salvation. He would remain on a cross to save the world. He would conquer death and be raised from the dead. Now it's always interesting to me the transformation that takes place with one of these robbers, with one of these insurrectionists, these criminals that was on the cross. Because in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44, we're told that both of the robbers, one on each side, they reviled him along with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so if you think about that, at the beginning of their time on the cross, this man who asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, he too was mocking Jesus. And my question has always been, what changed in that man's heart in such a short period of time? Well, you remember, as far as the record goes, Jesus has only said one thing that this man has heard. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And that statement, combined with the inscription above his head in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews, struck a chord in the heart of this man. And it must have turned his hard heart. By his own admission, the heart of a guilty man getting what he deserved. And you can imagine him listening to this prayer of forgiveness as he stands justly condemned for his crimes. And he says to himself, I want that too. Does that a statement apply to me? An innocent man, the king of the Jews, calling for forgiveness to those who, to those who are murdering him. 
And this man, likely a murderer himself, realizes that salvation is possible. And he asks Jesus for he asks Jesus for that salvation. The good news, the gospel. It has the power to change hearts. The good news is anyone can be saved. Never underestimate the power of forgiveness. The power it can have in your heart when you forgive and move forward. The power it can have on others when they see that heart of forgiveness in you. But more than anything else, never underestimate Jesus' power to forgive. No sin is too great. And no life is too far away from God to be out of reach of Jesus' forgiveness. Even in in the eleventh hour, forgiveness is available. As this man found himself on death's door suffering for his crimes, he thought of eternity. And eternity can come today for any one of us. Today, Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Will you be ready for it when today comes? Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says pointedly that Jesus, in prophesying about Jesus, that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He's on the cross, three crosses, right? And Jesus is one of the three numbered with these criminals. But here we find that turned on its head. This transgressor obtained the right to be numbered with the Savior. And it was not one saved man, innocent man, and two criminals, but suddenly it became two saved men on the cross. And from there, Jesus turns to a physical matter. Uh, Will you turn to John chapter 19, please? John chapter 19. Read with me verses 26 and well, 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, as John describes the scene, imagine. There stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, And the disciple whom he loved standing by, the very one who's writing these words, John the Apostle, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. Jesus had assured a heavenly home to the robber, but he would not neglect providing a physical home for his mother after his death. In Mark chapter 7, in verses 10 through 12, you probably remember that Jesus had spoken passionately about fulfilling the Mosaic law in regard to honoring father and mother. And it was not enough to just say, it's Corban, whatever I would have given to my parents, I'm going to give to God. Here Jesus is giving His all to God and the people, and yet still He remembers His obligation as the eldest son. He remembers His physical obligation to His mother. Even in His pain, He will honor both the law of Moses that required this of Him, and His loved one who had done so much for Him. And the responsibilities that God places upon us in our physical relationships as fathers and mothers and wives and husbands and children and brothers and sisters. Those obligations are not just when it's convenient for us. 
And though we are spiritual beings seeking a spiritual homeland, we are not excused by God from our physical duties just because we are spiritual. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, Paul says it straightforward as he always does. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and he is worse than an unbeliever. Of course, it was more than just duty that motivated Jesus to speak to his mother and the disciple whom he loved. It was love. It was empathy. Sometimes in our own grief and pain, it is hard to see the pain of others. But what Simeon had prophesied in the temple to Mary 33 years earlier, when they had brought baby Jesus, what he had prophesied had come to pass, and a sword had pierced her own soul also. Can you imagine how Mary felt in seeing this happen to her boy? And we talk how Jesus knows our pain. Well, Jesus knew her pain, and He sought to comfort her in this moment. And We need to look to those in pain and do the same. Whatever we are going through, there is nothing better that we could do than to reach out and help others who are hurting. And Jesus knows your pain, too. He seeks to provide peace and comfort and provision, even in the darkest of hours, which this literally was. Supernatural darkness lasted for about three hours. And then Jesus says the most disturbing thing of the whole crucifixion. Turn over to Matthew's Gospel. It's also found in Mark chapter 23. Perhaps that shows its importance. This is the only statement that is found in multiple Gospels. But we'll look at Matthew's account. Matthew chapter 27. Beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour... There was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. What did he mean by that? I mean, clearly this is very important. You look at the order of these seven statements and, and what they form is a chiastic structure to show that this statement is the main point of all of the sayings of Jesus. It's that idea of, of the poetic pyramid, right? That we go up by these steps and address to God on behalf of others. Father, forgive them. A victorious completion of His work. Looking forward to that, today you will be with me in paradise. And then physical considerations, his mother. And he goes back down by the same steps. Physical considerations, I thirst for water. A victorious completion of his work, it is finished. And then addressed to God on behalf of self. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you know that when it's designed in this way, that the most important point is found at the top by itself. So not just it's being repeated in multiple Gospels, but also when it's compared to the other statements, this, this is the main point 
of what Jesus says on the cross. So what did he mean? Even in the moment, there was confusion about what Jesus said. Matthew, writing in Greek, provides the Aramaic here, which he doesn't do uh, any other time. He provides the Aramaic phrase to show us why some people thought he was calling for Elijah. Eli, Eli, though referring to God, El, can be uh, a way to shorten the name Elijah. They misunderstood what Jesus meant, and they misunderstood to whom he was talking. And, and there's much confusion about this statement today in the religious world. And, and maybe I would suggest two main explanations that are sometimes put forward. Some people say that for one brief moment, Jesus looked at what it meant to be spiritually dead, to be separated from the Father. As we even sang a moment ago, the Father turns His face away as He took on the sins of the world. And it is sometimes suggested that this suffering, bearing the sins of the world and being separated from His Father, was worse than all of the physical and emotional and mental suffering combined. And I will admit that that makes a certain logical sense. Um, but it gets muddy when we get to trying to prove that spirit scripturally. Psalm 22 gives us some insight into this phrase, as that is what Jesus was quoting. So turn there, if you would, the 22nd Psalm, Psalm 22. This was written a thousand years before Jesus' birth. And not just that, we have manuscripts of the 22nd Psalm that the actual paper and ink that was written dates back to over a hundred years before Jesus was born. And then Jesus says these very words on the cross. Read with me beginning in verse 1. We see into the very heart and mind of our Savior as He hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm. And no man, reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They, they shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. Drop down to verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that is a vivid depiction of crucifixion, but not just any crucifixion, Christ's crucifixion. We read this context 
what it was Jesus said, and at the very least, we must admit that Jesus was experiencing the emotions of the writer of Psalm 22. And whether Jesus was literally forsaken or not, He felt forsaken. The human emotion He experienced was that of intense isolation, surrounded by enemies and deserted by friends. And Jesus' pain and anguish are on raw display to, to the extent that surely even the coldest of heart is made uncomfortable by what He says. Uh, there's a song that my mother used to sing to me as, as a lullaby when I was a kid. It's a song in our hymnal called The Ninety and Nine. And one of the verses in that song says, But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that our Lord passed through, ere He found His sheep that was lost. Perhaps we cannot grasp fully his anguish. But it is important to note, however, that Psalm 22 does not end in this despair of isolation and abandonment, but in the realization by the psalmist that though he feels abandoned, though he feels forsaken, he was not ultimately forsaken by God after all. Keep reading with me if you would. You know, we normally read down through verse 18. Let's read the rest of the psalm starting in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. And with that statement, the psalm turns into something totally different. It goes from a psalm of lament to a psalm of praise and trust in the deliverance of God. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him and fear Him. All you offspring of Israel, which we are spiritually, For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him. But when He cried to Him, He heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. God hears when we cry out and we say, My God, my God! He knows and He sees. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations, of the Gentiles, and that's most of us, shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him, even He who cannot keep Himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has done this. New King James says that He has done this. This, if you notice in your translation, is italicized, meaning it was added by the translators to give full meaning to the phrase. You know how else that Hebrew phrase can be translated? He has finished. He has done what it is God called him to do. May I suggest 
that just as the psalmist was not ultimately abandoned by God, Jesus' death seems a defeat, but it is a victory. It seems that God had forsaken him, but God answers his cry. It seems he is isolated and abandoned, but he is in the very act of being glorified. And Satan has bruised Christ's heel, no doubt. But in so doing, Christ is crushing Satan's head. And every first day of the week, we gather to declare his name to our brethren and recount to the next generation that he has done this, that he finished what he set out to do. Jesus' next statement is a fulfillment of this same psalm, as well as Psalm 69, this idea of Jesus' thirst and being given sour wine to drink. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. In verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Jesus is still fulfilling His Father's will. He says, I thirst, and now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to His mouth. This is the shortest statement of Jesus on the cross, I thirst. It reminds us, perhaps, of the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Each show His humanity. One last time, Jesus is tempted while in the flesh. And it is similar to the first time that we see Jesus expressly and explicitly tempted by the devil. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 4? Jesus had fasted for 40 days as he was about to begin his ministry. And afterward, remember what the text says? Afterward, he was hungry. Well, I would think so. And, and Satan had been tempting him all through the 40 days, but now he comes with three specific temptations. And, and the first temptation is this. He points to a stone or a group of stones, and he says, if you are really the Son of God, command that these stones become bread to fulfill that hunger that you have. And Jesus' response, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And now the very mouth of God is saying this, I thirst. Well, Luke adds a detail after that testing is finished in verse 13 of, of Luke chapter 4. That Satan went away from him, having finished those temptations. But he was waiting until an opportune time that he might tempt him again. Well, this occasion on the cross... That must have been the most opportune time that Satan ever had. And the devil was doing all that he could to bring Jesus to sin. Hunger can be terrible, but I think we would all agree that thirst is worse. The bread of life, he was hungry on this earth. And now the source of all living water was thirsty. Earlier in the crucifixion, hours earlier, Jesus had refused the drink when it was offered to him, Sour wine and gall were often given to persons about to be executed on the cross to try and stupefy their senses and deaden the pain. It was one of the few acts of mercy that was allowed by the Roman executioners. 
But Jesus refused to drink that potion and be stupefied by it. It was His Father's will that He would suffer as a sacrifice. And He would not go to the cross in some sort of drugged, semi-conscious condition. But now, now after the suffering has endured to the end, He takes one final drink. And He declares in verse 30, When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. What a statement. It is finished. Not of defeat, but of victory. The sacrifice had been made. The blood had been shed. The fruition of all Scripture to this point came to a head. And Jesus Jesus was found the victor. And that victory... That victory was really achieved now, but it would be proven, as Wade said so beautifully earlier, it would be proven three days later when, early on the first day of the week, Jesus would rise again from the the grave. Jesus' sacrifice was finished. His sacrifice was completed. And that means all sorts of things for us as Christians. That means sin is finished. That means separation is finished. The veil separating God from man was torn in two from top to bottom. We now can have fellowship with God. It means Satan is finished. And all of his schemes to conquer Christ and Christ's plan, all of those schemes have failed. It means our slavery can be finished to sin and Satan for all who submit to Christ. And suffering is finished, or it will be, when we finish the race looking unto Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We are reminded of Jesus and all those who have come before who run the same race that we are running. Therefore we also, the Hebrew writer says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people mentioned in the preceding chapter and many more who have passed on to their reward, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked to the joy that was set before Him. Not of returning to heaven, that's where He came from, but but to returning to heaven with us. Of bringing us to Himself. And the shame of the cross and all that Jesus went to, He despised it. He looked down on it. It was worth it to Him. And it is worth it to us to finish the race as He did, to look to Him as our example. Luke records Jesus saying one final prayer. In Luke 23, verses 44 through 47. Turn to this final passage and then the lesson will be yours. There was that darkness and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, verse 46, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. And so when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Another Gospel tells us, certainly 
This man was the Son of God or a son of the gods. Matthew 27.50 is specific. It says that Jesus yielded up His Spirit. It was by His will and His choice. He was willing to lay down His life knowing that He had the power to take it up again. And no man could take it from Him, He said in John 10. As Jesus lived, so He died. In communion with, totally committed to, and seeking the will of His Father. Have you almost died before? Stephanie and I were driving um, last week, and where we were staying, you have to drive on the left side of the road, and that prevents, uh, presents some challenges. Um, and we were driving, and I was doing a great job, if I do say so myself, staying on my side. And we come around this corner, and there was this huge trash truck coming the other way that was way over the line. And I had to swerve way to the side and go into the ditch a little bit, and... Uh, after everything was over, I looked over at Stephanie and I said, you know, I'm ready to go, but I don't think I want to go like that. You know, uh, here lies Reagan smashed by the trash truck. <laughs> but however I die someday, I want to imitate Jesus in this way. That I am in communion with, fellowship with, totally committed to, and seeking the will of my Father in heaven. And may the last words from my lips be, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died for you and for me that we might have forgiveness. And without Christ's death, we have no hope, we have no promise, we have no salvation, we have no relationship with God, we have no eternal life. In short, we have nothing. Well, we have this life. That's it. And many live their lives as if this life is all there was. Look at how good this life is, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And my question for you this morning, is that enough? Is that enough for you, this life? Our blip of existence that is like a vapor, it's like smoke, poof! One day it's here, one moment it's here, and the next it's gone. A, a life without lasting hope, a life consumed with the accumulation of stuff of things that are all going to be burned up and they're going to be out of our hands because we're going to be dead long before they do. The accumulation of material wealth that we can't take with us beyond the grave. A life lived by so many people in this world. Let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Is that enough? I was shopping with Steph this past week and I started listening to the song that was playing in the store and it was talking about this woman and she had been partying and how she had no memory of the day before and no money in her pocket and a headache from partying. And the tagline of the chorus was, well, at least I had fun. Really? That's it? My life is often fun. But that is not enough. Not enough for me. I desire more. And because of Christ's death, 
there is something more to my life than this physical existence and even this physical body that you see before you. I have peace and hope and expectation. I have purpose. A purpose that extends from this very moment through the rest of eternity. To serve and love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because I believe the words of Jesus. And no one ever spoke like this man. Well, if you've heard his words and you believe them, respond. Come in humble submission and put Christ on in baptism. That just as He rose from the dead after His physical death, you can rise from the dead after your spiritual death. And if we can help you with that even now, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing. Oh.